Hey guys, welcome. This is the Church in a Brewery podcast. I'm sitting here with Heath today. Say hi, Heath. Hi. How's it going? Good, man. So we've been doing Church in a Brewery. We've been meeting at this discussion group for eight weeks now. Eight weeks, man. Yeah, man. How's it? How's it been for you? Um, I've sat at a, a few different tables and all different personalities. It's kind of been, I don't know, knocking me off my track, so to speak. What do you mean by that? Um, I'm usually around the same type of people and I know how to communicate with them. This time I don't. Oh, so it's, yeah. It's yeah. like a new experience each time you're talking to people with, well, one, differences of opinion. So usually I'm around a lot of similar people. Especially mm-hmm. when it comes to politics, but that's kind of changed. Yeah, me too. And I think that was kind of our goal. But like now to experience it, it's it's really different. Like we're not used to that. Yeah, I didn't expect that. I like it though. We're learning a lot. So I thought I've been doing a weekly recap. I thought I'd do just a very, very condensed recap. And then Heath and I are going to talk about some Proverbs there's the book of wisdom in the Bible written by Solomon, and there are some really interesting little snippets, like nuggets of wisdom that we thought maybe we'd just read three of them and talk about what they mean or might mean. So I'll start off with last night's discussion. We've been talking about why God would allow evil in the world or pain and suffering, and this was our second week on that topic, so we were talking more about the Garden of Eden. If you read Genesis chapter 3, it talks about like the moment that pain and suffering entered the world of man. So what did you think about that discussion last night? What stuck out to you? The Garden of Eden. That's pretty significant when it comes to why evil is in the world um, and also how evil is in the world. Yeah. Yeah, you're so, right. I mean, they kind of go hand in hand, but yeah. Yeah, so Genesis chapter 3 gives us the why. Why is pain and suffering and evil here. Why is everything slowly breaking down? And the story there is that Adam and Eve were living in the Garden of Eden, which was basically a paradise, and God actually dwelled there with them at that time. And then God told them that they could they could eat from any tree in the garden, right? Except for this tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I used to look at that and think, I focused on the tree that they couldn't eat from. But now I realize they actually had a ton of freedom because they could do all this other stuff. They just couldn't eat from this one tree, right? So, of course, they're curious because humans are curious. So they ate from the tree that they're not supposed to eat from. And then God comes looking for them. They know they did something wrong. So Adam and Eve are hiding. God gave them a chance to fess up. But really, instead, they blamed each other. And then they blamed this serpent, which they said, tempted them. So basically Adam and Eve just tried to blame someone else. Any anyone was responsible but themselves for eating this fruit that they weren't supposed to eat from. And I don't know if the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the fruit was a literal tree or not. I don't know if it was symbolic or not, but I feel like regardless the message is the same because people broke the one rule that God told them not to break. What do you think about that? That's that's kind of funny. I always focused on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I'm like, why would God make all this creation and then put something here just to like play with their minds, so to speak? Yeah. That's that's how I looked at it at first. I mean, it's a lot more in depth than that, but 
on the surface, that seems kind of cruel. Like if you created this perfect creation and then here's this tree, don't eat from it, guys. Yeah. Have you ever seen cartoons where there's a button and like Bugs Bunny or somebody, <laughs> like they have to press the button that says don't push. And like they're trying to resist and they're holding their arm back and they eventually press the button and like bombs go off or a missile shoots off or something destructive happens, right? It reminds me of Mar and the Martian. Yeah, there, the there's a rocket. Yeah, there's something realistic about that. It's really funny. So I posed the question last night. Are, are you guys ever mad at Adam and Eve because they ate from the tree they're not supposed to? And then it says that God basically cursed the world, right? Like now childbearing would be painful, whereas before maybe it wasn't. And so I look at it this way. I look at it like God is the source of love, the source of life, the source of justice. And I look at him like a power source or a Wi-Fi router. I used this analogy last night, like when you're close to your Wi-Fi router and you're trying to stream Netflix off your laptop, you're watching a movie. If you go too far away from that router, the signal starts to break down and your movie starts to skip and lag and buffer, right? The signal from the router is getting weaker and weaker. Well, it's like if you're trying to watch the movie and you want to go you want to go too far away from the router and watch in your backyard where you can sip lemonade out in the shade or whatever. It's too far away. I look at God as kind of the same way. If he's the source of life and love and justice, then when humanity was no longer right where he was in the garden of Eden and they they became distanced from him after they broke his trust, that signal from the source of life, the source of love, broke down a little bit. So pain is is a result of, of not being where God is. That's the way I look at it. What do you think? Do you think that's an accurate analogy and any deficiencies that you see? Well, I think you're always going to have deficiencies when you're going to be dealing with God himself. Yeah, I like your Wi-Fi router, except for the physical distance. I think he's always as close as he is. He's just there's something broken there. Like uh, mm-hmm. there's not that clarity of communication that there once was. That's a good point because it's beyond just physical distance. I mean, like I've, I've heard it said that God isn't fully present here. And that's what I'm thinking of when I use that analogy, because like he is here and around, but we're not standing in front of him. Like maybe we will be after we die, that kind of thing. There are areas where the analogy kind of breaks down, but you get the idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How you view that can change how you view God. Yeah, well, the other thing is I used to look at this story as like, oh, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, and and the punishment really stuck out strongly in my mind. But now that I'm older and I read it again, I realize that the humans broke God's trust first, and it's really the humans that took a step away from God rather than the other way around. So they took the spiritual step away, and then he took the physical step away from them in the garden. Yeah. Even though he's probably everywhere else, he was definitely present in the garden fully, just like they were. Yeah, it could be similar to, like, you get in a committed dating relationship or a marriage, and you're you're not supposed to go to coffee with some girl at work who might have a crush on you, right? Because you're putting yourself in a difficult situation, and I almost view what Adam and Eve did like that, hmm. like like a, a husband or a wife who got curious about an intern at work or something and went out and had a drink with her. Like It's kind of a violation of the trust in the relationship. 
I kind of see that what Adam and Eve did is something similar. It was a good discussion, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It led all kinds of places that I didn't think of that it would go. And that was kind of eye-opening. We had a mix in the room, too, of, of views on the Garden of Eden, whether or not the tree was a real tree or literal tree or if it's symbolic. I mean, we had a range of views in the room, and that's okay. That's cool. It's what we want. Yeah, because it gives us a chance to explore and learn. All right, that was last night's discussion. It was pretty fun. We're going to take a look at three Proverbs. Heath has been reading through Proverbs and sending me some really interesting ones. And we thought, hey, let's mention some of these bits of wisdom on the podcast. So what do you got? Well, I got, well, I've got, I've got a couple. Proverbs 11.3 is one of them. This comes, I think this is from the English Standard Version, ESV. Just because I like the way it puts some of the wording. I'm a word guy. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Here's the second one, Proverbs 13.3. And I think these were all written by Solomon, at least the first part of them. There were a few of them that weren't written by Solomon. But Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, and he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Very interesting. And then you had one as well. Yeah, Proverbs 9, verse 7. I've got two translations here because I kind of like the way one of the paraphrases Mm. um, (laughs) speaks about it. So the New International Version says, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. And the New Living Translation kind of puts it a little bit more in plain English. It says, Anyone who rebukes a mocker will get an insult in return. Anyone who corrects the wicked will get hurt. So what do you say we uh, go through these one by one and kind of analyze them? Sure. Proverbs 11.3, you want to read that again? 11.3, yeah. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. What do you think that means? Man, I like that word, treacherous. It just sounds cool. Sounds like a movie synopsis. Treacherous. Treacherous. Yeah, and the trailers. The treacherous villain. Skynet. It's closer than you think. <laughs> the integrity of the upright guides them. I've been really focusing on on my own integrity. I mean, I fail all the time at it, but it's good to have because of the consistency. You don't have to keep track of yourself, and so if you. I guess you can be integrous. I guess. I don't know. What the heck is integrity? I don't know. Um, <laughs> look it up. Oh, the definition, sure. But the last half, the crookedness of the treacherous. I like the the comparison between the upright and the wicked there. It's something that, you know, all humans have to watch for. What does it mean to be guided by integrity? Is this talking about looking at other people with integrity and that being an example? Or like some kind of internal integrity being your moral compass through difficult decisions? I think that more of is trying not to just please people. Because if you're a people pleaser, you're not going to be a man of integrity. You're going to look out for pleasing the people for your own gain. Okay, so you might do something that's wrong because that would please the people around you. You may do what someone pressures you into rather than what might be the right thing to do. Yeah, if money's involved and you take a bribe, just think if you're a like a politician and you take a bribe for a special interest group, that can lead to some treacherous things for some people. Mm-hmm. Then we end up with a politically corrupt situation. Yeah, if you're a man of integrity here, then... Your decisions will be consistent. If you have a set of moral values, so to speak, you're going to always go with those. Mm-hmm. And if you're a 
if you're a man of honor, so to speak, you're going to stay with it, whether you like the decision or not, whether you have a bribe of $2 million or not. That's really tempting if I was bribed with $2 million. That's more than I'll probably make in my life. Hey, do you ever wonder if, uh, if you would take a bribe if it was big enough? Like, do you ever yeah. worry about, like, what would I do if somebody... Like, what, what if you found out about, like, some insane conspiracy and, like, the whole public was being taken advantage of, right? Like a vaccine full of nanobots that track people. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with something crazy that's somewhat relevant. I'm not saying I believe in that, because I don't. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but let's say you found out that that was true, and then you tried to tell someone about it, and then somebody came to you and they're like, look, you got to stop talking about this. We'll pay you $2 million to not say anything and to hide the evidence that you'd uncovered. What would you do? Like, how do you know you would make the right decision? Well, the money would be hard, especially if I'm struggling with it. Because we're human, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'd probably try to figure out a way to make both happen. But anyway. (laughs) How exactly would you do that? Take the money and then tell the people about it. (laughs) And then possibly take heat for taking money. Yeah, it's okay to rob con artists, right? (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm just kidding. kidding. We we don't endorse that. I do not endorse that. In fact, I would probably go to jail. Yeah, do you have a moral problem with Robin Hood? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because <laughs> he steals from people to bless others, and I don't know. That seems a lot like taxes. <laughs> hey, you steal from my paycheck so that we can go and donate somewhere. Is that? With federal aid. Is that stealing? Uh, that can get really difficult. Gray area. Yeah. If you live by this proverb, then you'll make the right decision with a $2 million bribe, right? You'd probably turn it down. I would probably turn it down. Yeah. Okay. It would, it would be a very tough decision. They wouldn't come out and say it's a bribe. So I would probably no, have to detect that it's a bribe, mm-hmm. which people can be tricky when they try to get things done. You hide it behind a facade of something else. I'm sure you have a Batman reference for this. Oh, I'm thinking about the Dark Knight. In the middle of the Dark Knight, it's like, I believe Joker had bribed all these cops. Like this one cop, she had a, a mom in the hospital or something. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. And like Joker threatened her. So... You know, he's going to kill this person's family member if they don't do what he says. So they do. Well, there's a dilemma. If you're, if you're a man of integrity or a woman of integrity, do you give in to the demands and harm someone else, you know, to save somebody you love? Or, like, what do you do? You could go debate on this all day long. But, yeah, that proverb kind of makes you focus on that and make you think about it. Mm-hmm. Versus just going and doing it just because you feel like it. Even if you make some mistakes, you get a better shot at having integrity if you try to follow that proverb. Yeah. All right. What about Proverbs 13.3? Proverbs 13.3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, and he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. There are times that I feel like not saying anything, I should. But most of the time, there's, there's this phrase that says, People can think you're stupid, but if you open your mouth, that removes all doubt. Who quoted that? I, I've heard that before. I have no idea. You have to Google it. I have no idea. But if I talk a lot, sometimes I'm condemned by my words because they don't always match up. Yeah, that makes sense. Or I say something stupid. Have you ever had like the snowball effect? You're talking to someone in a conversation and in trying to get your point across, like you just keep going and going and digging a deeper, deeper hole. Yeah. I've been there. I do it all the time. Less I... now than I used to. But... Mm-hmm. Yep, here's the shovel. You know, if you dig a staircase, you'll get out of it. <laughs> you know, interestingly, 
I've been working on making some videos and stuff. And to put them on Instagram, they got to be really short. And it makes you choose your words super carefully. At the same time, Brewery Church, when we start a meeting, I give like a 10 to 15 minute topic introduction to kind of give the people something to talk about. And to limit it to, you know, 10 minutes or so, I have to cut out a lot of things that maybe I would like to say. But honestly, that's probably too much information for a lot of people. And I don't want it to be like a normal church service where people are watching a guy talk for 30 minutes. So just the exercise of limiting my words has been really eye-opening to me. It makes you think about everything that you're going to say and, and make sure that it's it's true, it's clear, and it's valuable. I had a thought. I stumped you. I was thinking, how is this going to preserve your life in the long run? How does keeping your words concise and, well, eloquent, for lack of a better word? I don't know. I was thinking in social situations, filtering what you say can be very important. So that's what I was thinking when I'm trying to condense something I'm going to say for a video or for a brewery church. I have to filter what I say. And I think filtering what you say rather than just letting out whatever you think can actually prevent a lot of disagreements or fights or arguments. So that could be a positive thing because like, what, back in Bible times, like people just kill you because you said something that they disagreed with? Heck, they do that today. Yeah, in some countries, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I guess if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, that could happen now. Yeah. If you're wordy, people have a hard time, you know, collecting the thoughts of what you said. Yeah, journaling. I wonder if that's one reason, because when you journal, you think as fast as you write. And so when you're done with your sentence, you've probably thought about the sentence five times before you finished and hit the period. Mm -hmm. That's one reason I like journaling, because you can get your thoughts together on a piece of paper. Whereas if I'm talking about it, I can talk forever and ever and ever, and you'll have a hard time getting my point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we're at a point in society where we're all very sensitive right now, because we're all going through a lot. And... We can't necessarily just say what we feel because that would be lashing out and that would do some damage to other people, relationships, things like that. And a lot of people are really sensitive right now. So some stuff that wasn't sensitive five years ago will be sensitive now and or rude, so to speak. Yeah, it's weird how stuff changes, isn't it? Yeah. Meanings of words change too. All right. How about the last one? Proverbs 9-7. This is the juiciest one to me. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. All right. How would you put that in today's language? Mm. I don't know. That seems like 1950s-ish language. Yeah. Yeah, it is. New Living Translation is a little closer. It's still not necessarily 2020 speak, but it says this. (laughs) Anyone who rebukes a mocker will get an insult in return. Anyone who corrects the wicked will get hurt. All right. So this is a juicy one. Mm -hmm. Because... Like, you almost don't know what to do with it because I'd say sometimes it seems like the moral thing to do is to tell somebody they're doing something wrong, right? I know people don't think that. I guess this is talking about a specific situation because this is talking about a mocker. So somebody who's making fun of you or your cause or something you believe in. I think of a heckler, you know? Someone just out to argue an argument? Yeah. they They don't like what you do, so they kind of, I don't know, scoff at you. Yeah, well, hey, we, you and I have both been heckled on Facebook fairly recently for a variety of things. So yeah. I'm thinking about that, and I, I see it happening to other people too, and I feel, I feel bad because it, it's kind of painful. <laughs> but, yeah, I could see, 
Like if you stepped in and tried to correct somebody who was attacking you, I don't know. Have, have you ever seen that end well? No, I've fought that before. And now I'm just like, the sa- I get the same result whether I correct or whether I just shut up and take the heat. In mm-hmm. fact, shutting up and take the heat, they kind of lose fuel for their argument because it doesn't keep it going. Which, at first it seems like you're losing, but it shortens the argument. <laughs> what if they're trying to draw you into a response? So if you oh. respond, you're actually giving them what they wanted because they wanted an opportunity to heckle you. I've had that, yep. I don't, I don't think everybody's like that, but in this context, when this verse is talking about like a, a mocker or the wicked, I'm thinking it means... Someone who's critical and who's like actually like attacking you, not someone who comes to you and has an opposing view, like where a healthy conversation can take place. I'm thinking about somebody who's like coming in with like destructive intent. Is that what you read in this verse? Yeah, especially the last part. I can think of an interesting scenario. It's relevant to us. Some people are very uncomfortable with us having a, uh, spiritual discussion group in a brewery where there's alcohol involved yeah yeah we've gotten some respectful responses and like inquiries from people who are uncomfortable and i understand that we've also got some people who have told us that we are evil human beings (laughs) and i think the first case maybe depending on how they approach us maybe a cool conversation could take place but I think if I fired back at the people who called us evil, then that would just fuel the fire, right? That'd probably confirm their uh, judgments that you were evil. Yeah, so a situation that we had recently comes to mind when I think of that. I think about this proverb, and I think it's good advice, particularly for social media and stuff like that. There are a lot of people who are um, just really stressed and upset and maybe angry about some of the stuff that's going on. I see the two political parties even kind of mocking each other right now. And mm-hmm. I'm a little worried about that in terms of the, the country because I, I don't know that that's going to result in anything good for us as a whole. But it is it is really easy to get into that. Would you ever correct the mocking if you had influence over these people? Or I just don't know that it group? would do any good. What do you think is a more effective approach? Diffusion. Diffusing an argument. Yeah, okay, we've been... We've been learning to do that for disarm, I a guess. couple of years. Uh, we've both gone through some training for communication in terms of conflict resolution. And now we're getting a chance to practice that. Yep. That's been really helpful. It's hard, man. It's not easy. Yeah, you have to think outside yourself. So we've got diffusing a conversation, diffusing an argument. Like, how might you do that? I would look at where the argument currently is. I look at what's in common and start there. Oh, yeah, it's good. So if you if you start with all the disagreements, that's all you're going to have, and you're not going to be able to make, make contact in the relationship. Not with your fists, but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mentally. If you bring up common interests or even you know, similarities of the argument, you could, you could connect and start to discuss starting there and then working your way to the disagreement. So, so if you're on a political thing, say you should outlaw cantaloupes because they reduce, you know, the land for other crops or I don't know. That's just silly. But you'd start with, hey, I think I think growing crops is a good idea. And maybe you know, space is a problem. And maybe space maybe space is a problem. Like you your density, you just can't you have to farm vertically and you can't farm horizontally. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to solve this problem by thinking out of the box? 
Yeah. So you start there. Yeah. Like the space is a problem. You found a common ground. Now you're on the same page. Unintended. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now you're both relating to each other rather than just correcting them. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to do something similar at the brewery church too, because not everybody has the same spiritual background as us or beliefs. Mm-hmm. So even if somebody from a different religion comes in, I'm trying to find points of commonality when they're talking to me that I can I can voice and say, oh yeah, uh, I understand where you're coming from there. I think that's a good technique because the other way, if someone's saying something we, we disagree with and we just corrected them, that could be a little insensitive on our part. I could put up a metal wall mm-hmm. and prevent the issue from being solved at all. I see that all the time in congressional debates. Yeah. Yeah. So you're all wrong. First of all, don't call the other person wrong directly. They might be wrong. but Well, they might be, but... but so what? <laughs> in our society, I, I'm taking this from what I see in politics. Mm-hmm. In our society, being wrong has become a shameful thing. Like, they shame you, and it's a terrible position to be in. But aren't we all wrong about some stuff? So if we could somehow make being wrong, like, just a normal part of life, wouldn't we'd be better off and like less hurt when we get into these discussions. I think we would. How many cognitive biases are there? Like a hundred and one there's, billion. There's over a, a hundred. I think there's 180 cognitive biases. Mm-hmm. We're all biased by some degree. What they say, the two minds are better than one. I do think if you fire back with a disagreement, the problem won't get solved. Hey, I like what you said there because two minds are better than one, right? It's like if you're you have a complicated problem and you're trying to get two computers to solve it instead of one. Oh, probably yeah. solve it faster. So if we could think about how do we find commonality with this person, uh, even though we have different views, how do we get on the same page and solve this problem? That actually is better for all of us. I know I realize sometimes that's not possible because like sometimes people just want to beat on you <laughs> or throw tomatoes and it yeah. doesn't matter what you do. But I still think... Regardless of what they're doing, if we fire back, it's probably still going to make it worse, I would think. But Yeah, Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's related to this verse. So, yeah. Don't correct someone who's mocking you. Yeah. Yeah. He also said, do not be afraid if, if they say bad things or persecute you on behalf of me. Mm-hmm. He translation. I can't remember the exact wording. But he said that. Yeah, like, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah, that's countercultural because we always feel like responding. Maybe the loving thing to do sometimes is nothing. Is that painful? This goes back to our discussion yeah, last night. It is. It is. Do, do you grow through pain? Yeah. Yeah, actually. No pain, no gain. You don't gain intelligence by being stuck in your own way. No. Of course, knowledge also puffs up. So I guess that's more self-centered knowledge mm-hmm. and not working toward the good of others, which is what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, man, for talking to me about this stuff. Yeah, man. It was a good discussion. It was. I liked your computer reference. <laughs> Thank so you. If you take 100 computers, it's called clustering. Oh. And you take 100 computers and try to solve the same issue, there's protocols there that make that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, it's a distributed system. In fact, most AI now is distributed system. Huh. Interesting. There you go. IT term of the day. All right. Well, thanks, man. I'll see you around. All right, man. I will see you at Brewery Church on Monday. Yep. Looking to try the new... I tried the sour last time. Oh, yeah. The, what the, is that? The, um, 
The berry beer? Yeah, that was really good. I'm looking to try the next, the other sour next time. I did like that one. I'm not usually a fruity beer sour guy. I'm a dark beer guy, but I, I really like the barley wine that they have. I've been, I've been on the brown ale for a while. Now I'm gonna try the barley wine again. That sounds good. I'll catch you around. All right, man. Peace.